0: thank you now we have old testament reading from exodus 32 and then a new testament reading from romans 3 the testament story is a long one so don't get too comfy you might you need to sit on the edge of your seat and hang on so exodus 32 when the people saw that moses was so long in coming down from the mountain they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him And made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people, whom you brought out out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I might destroy them. And Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn, them from, turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and I will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain, and he took the calf they had made and burnt it in the fire. Then he ground it to a powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us, As for this fellow, Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, take it off. Then they gave me the gold. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. So he became a laughingstock and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day the next day Moses said to the people you've committed a great sin but now I will go up to the Lord perhaps I can make atonement for your sin so Moses went back to the Lord and said oh what a great sin these people have committed they have made themselves gods of gold but now please forgive their sin and if not Then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they had done with the calf Aaron had made turn to romans chapter 3 and verse 21 to 26 and now a righteousness from god apart from law has been known to which the law and the prophets testify this righteousness from god comes through faith in jesus christ and all who believe There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Robin, and thank you, Kat, for your wonderful prayer. As Kat said before, if there are any questions for the Q&A, please text them through to my phone number that's up on your screen there. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word, Father, thank you for Your word. thank you for your grace and your kindness to us in revealing yourself through it, pray that you would help us to have hearts that are soft and open to you, pray you would also help me to communicate uh, your word faithfully and clearly so that we all together will grow deeper in love with you and, um, and become more like Jesus. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's something that just seems right and good about keeping our word, isn't there? We expect that when a promise is made, that it's followed through. And we as a society, we we get outraged when someone with power, especially, gets caught out in a lie or fails to deliver what they've promised. And I think for the most part, we try to be a faithful sort of people. And I know that um, the messaging of our society says to us, go and seek pleasure and experiment and do what feels good to you. But there's also a part of us that wants to be faithful, isn't there? In the most extreme circumstances, we might be willing to be unfaithful in a personal relationship so that we can get what we need. But I'm sure that we'd be outraged if we were the ones who were sinned against. And while we might not always be able to show perfect faithfulness, I suspect that we might expect it of everyone else in our lives. And this question of faithfulness in relationship is front and center in Exodus 32, our text for this morning. And there's much that could be said about this text, there's so much in there, it's so rich. But um, for our time together this morning, and as we consider this chapter in the story of God's people, we'll consider the the following three points. Firstly, um, we'll look at the covenant unfaithfulness of Israel. Secondly, we'll, we'll talk about the fallout of this unfaithfulness. And from there, we'll see our need for a perfect faithfulness. But before we jump into our text directly today, it's really important that we spend some time setting the scene. Pete really helpfully explained to us a few weeks ago that the word covenant it means a personal relationship that's legally enforced, and I think a marriage covenant is a really great example of this because in a marriage, two parties they come together out of their love for one another, and they declare that love publicly and they commit to living a very particular life together. This relationship is then legally recognized. You know, they sign the papers, and then the relationship between the two parties is given a really special status, not just in their eyes, but also in the eyes of the law. And this image of marriage helps us to envisage what's going on in Israel's story here. See, the story of Exodus, and indeed all of the Bible, is a story of God's loving initiative his loving action in choosing a people and setting them apart as his special possession in exodus we read how god chose israel and how he delivers them from the bondage of egyptian slavery and up until this point he's lovingly led them every step of the way See, god the lover has been wooing israel with his gentle and powerful love He's demonstrated his miraculous power to save through the whole Egyptian episode. He's shown his generous heart to them in providing them the manna and the meat for them to eat every day. He's been really patient with Israel in providing water from the rock to satisfy their thirst despite all of their grumbling. And every day he went before them, leading them in the cloud and every night leading them in the pillar of fire. God's intention was and is every step of the way that he would be their God and that they would be his special people. And we see this love in his instructions to Israel in Exodus 20 to 23, You know, the, with all the 10 commandments and the laws that unpack them. All of these laws center around who Israel are to be as they live in covenant relationship with God. Israel, in these chapters, they're called to be faithful, called not to have any other gods before Yahweh. They're called to be merciful and just and to increasingly embody the character of the one that they've entered into a covenant relationship with. And in some ways, our own relationships work in a similar way. I mean, For example, before meeting Blessie, um, dirty socks lived on the floor beside a pile of dirty laundry in my room. But when we got married, I quickly learned that I would have to find a new way of living. One in which worn socks now lived in a laundry hamper, not in a pile on the floor. And this wasn't a change that I made out of fear perhaps a little, to be honest, but when you deeply love a person, you gladly make the outward changes to your behaviour because of a deep internal love you have for them. And this is how Israel's relationship with God was meant to be. You know, they had witnessed firsthand God's faithful love to them and they were set apart as his special people and they were called to faithfully live out their lives in response to this love and grace that they'd received in God. And after those chapters, Moses hears these commands of how Israel should be and how they should live as God's people, When he comes down from the mountain. In Exodus 24, he tells all of God's people the words that God has spoken, who he's calling them to be. And then all of Israel, with one heart, proclaim to Israel and to God in verses 4 and 7, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. See here, Israel effectively stands at the altar and takes her vows and says to God, I do. And after this beautiful moment, Moses and Aaron and all of Israel's leaders, they make sacrifices to the Lord and they're cleansed by the blood of these sacrifices. And chapter 24, verse 11 tells us that they saw God. They ate and they drank together with him. So here we have this picture of the greatest wedding banquet up until this point in history, with God as the centre of everyone's attention and Israel for the very first time enjoying an intimacy with him unlike ever before. After this feast, Exodus 25 to 31 tells us that Moses is called back up the mountain and he's given very precise instructions and details of how Israel were to prepare for God's special presence dwelling in their midst. And Pete covered this in his sermon um, last week. See, in the tabernacle, God was coming to live with them. And so what we have in this story, this story in Exodus, is God loving and saving and wooing his people, calling them to a new way of living in covenant relationship. We have Israel in chapter 24 saying to God, we do, committing themselves to him. And God saying to his special people, this is how I, the holy living God, will come to be with you and you will belong to me. And so when we come to Exodus 32, I mean, if we read it in isolation, it's a, it's a story of great sin against God. But then when we set it, set it up with this backstory of God's covenantal relationship with Israel, Exodus 32 becomes absolutely heartbreaking. See, God has been nothing but good and faithful. He's taken every possible action to to be Israel's God and to make them his people. But what Israel effectively has done was cheat on her husband while on their honeymoon. If we think back to Exodus 20 and the first commandment, Israel was to have no other gods before Yahweh. And what Israel does not only insults God to his face, but then they try to replace him with a God of their own creation. See, in verse 1, the Israelites come to Aaron and they surround him and they demand that he make for them gods to go before them. Never mind that God had led them out of Egypt with a mighty hand or that he had gone before them day and night in the pillar of cloud and fire. And Israel. In verse 1, they they credit Moses as the one who had brought them out of Egypt, not God. See, what they effectively are saying to God is that, God, it wasn't you. It was never you. And then they go about fashioning a God for themselves, a God that they can manipulate and control. See, Israel, they take their gold, the gold that they had plundered from their Egyptian captors, and they hand it over to be turned into an idol. The heartbreaking thing about this is that this gold was meant to adorn the tabernacle. It was meant for the place where they would meet with their lover, God. And instead of this gold leading to loving, intimate worship, Israel's gold pays the way for their unfaithfulness. And once the golden calf has been fashioned by Aaron, the people all declare, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And again, they spit in God's face and they say, God, it was never you. And Aaron, being Israel's priest, he tries to salvage the whole situation. And he declares a festival to the Lord. Israel gets up early the next day and they do all the things that were meant to be done in proper worship of God, but instead do it before their mistress. See, sin, church, is not just breaking God's law, but it's also breaking his heart. And Andy Jard really helpfully pointed out a few weeks ago for us that the sin of idolatry is not just worshipping another false god, but it's also worshipping the right god the wrong way. A wife cheating on her husband with another man, that's a terrible thing. But so is a husband who selfishly uses his wife as a means for self-gratification. See, both of these situations degrade and devalue the other person. Both fashion our desires into the shape of a God. And this isn't just what Israel was doing to God with the golden calf. It's also what we do, but perhaps in less obvious ways. An idol is essentially anything that we trust in other than God to save us. We see Israel doing this, right, when they point to the calf and they say, here's the God who delivered us out of generations of Egyptian slavery. In our current society and in our modern age, we typically don't really bow down to physical images or statues, but I think we certainly place our trust in all sorts of things to save us and to give our lives meaning. And for us, it might look more like trusting deep down that if I can just get hold of this or reach this certain point, then I'll be safe from all of life's perils and free to live my life to its fullest. See, whatever this something is, it becomes our functional God. What's perhaps most confronting for us as Christians about in Exodus 32 is that it's written not about the pagan nations who didn't know God, but that Exodus 32 is written about God's own people. And for us, what is... Just as destructive, just as unfaithful is when we take Aaron's approach to idolatry, trying to straddle the fence, trying to mold God into whatever the shape of the thing that we idolize. See, I wonder if sometimes we might justify our materialism by offering thanks to God as our provider. Or I wonder if we might try to cover up our workaholism with by with telling ourselves that. No, this is what God wants me to do. Or I wonder if some of us might be trying to hide our addiction to approval by saying that we are following Jesus' commands to live the way of love. We all need something or someone to worship. We all trust in something or someone to save us. But the question is then, who or what have we placed our trust in? Is it a God shaped by our own hands or is it the uncontainable, holy and loving God of the Bible? And as with anything in our lives, there are consequences for the choices that we make. There's a a fallout for unfaithfulness. We have the sense that we should be a faithful people, but I sense that it's not quite that simple. I doubt that there would be any of us who are married or dating another person who could honestly say that our hearts and our minds and our eyes have never wandered. And just like the lustful desires of the heart, like entertaining a fantasy of the mind, idolatry sin, it has a payoff. I mean, it wouldn't be tempting if it didn't, right? The lure of idols is that we can enjoy the party before the golden calf. But what we're not told is that we will also bear the consequences. In Exodus 32, verses 7 to 10, we can hear God's heartbreak here. These verses, they paint for us a very human picture of God. He's a God who gets angry, who gets frustrated, who feels deeply, who mourns and who regrets. And this moment in the story gives us a glimpse of a God who is not some distant, impersonal force, but a person, a lover, who's been deeply wounded. And here's where our image of a marriage begins to unravel. See, in a human marriage, the two parties typically enter into the covenant as equal parties. But in Israel's case, just like it is with us, the gap between humanity and God is one that we can never cross. And apart from God's loving action, that would be impossible. So remember, let's think back to how God has saved and loved and wooed Israel. And let's remember too that this same God is the all-powerful, holy God who spoke the world into existence. And so for Israel not only to bow before an idol but to attribute to this idol everything that God had done for them, this is an offence of infinite measure. God speaking with Moses says to him in verse 7, These are your people. We see that Israel's unfaithfulness means that their covenant relationship with God is now broken. And the stone tablets, which signified God's covenantal relationship with Israel, they were smashed to pieces like a marriage covenant gets shredded in a divorce. But because God is holy, just, and good, he can't tolerate sin. And so justice is quickly enacted and the Israelites bear the consequences for their unfaithfulness. Many are put to death either by the sword or by a plague. But because God is also merciful, he doesn't wipe out the Israelites completely, but they still suffer the consequences for their actions. Our consequence, Our actions have consequences too. Sweatshop workers suffer for our consumerism. Families suffer for our workaholism. Friends suffer for our approval addiction. We suffer fear when we lose power. We suffer dissatisfaction when pleasure comes to an end. See, there's a fallout to our idolatry. And when we feel these consequences in our lives... It might help for us to take a moment to ask what has failed to live up to its promise. See there's a line in the song come thou found prone to wonder, Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Church we know we should be faithful. We know it's the right thing to do. It's even how we expect everyone in our lives to treat us. But our hearts are prone to wandering. Our hearts lustfully gaze at saviours other than God that promise the world but fail to deliver. When we worship anything other than God, we divorce ourselves from the only one who can truly save and satisfy. And in this, we see our need for a perfect faithfulness. And up until this point, I've been trying to help us to see that in many ways, we're in a very similar position to Israel. We're tempted by and we worship idols. We struggle to remain wholly faithful to our God. And we even suffer the consequences for this unfaithfulness. But there's one key way in which we are completely unlike Israel. And this isn't because of who we are but because of who Jesus is. Moses acted as Israel's faithful mediator. He was up on the mountain speaking with God while Israel was below indulging in idolatry and revelry. And Moses knew too, better than anyone, what Israel's unfaithfulness meant before God because he had known God unlike anyone else before. And he goes up to the mountain again in verse 30 to make atonement. For the sins of Israel. And to atone for something simply means that you pay a price to set things right between two parties. Moses knows that the just punishment for unfaithfulness before a holy and just God is death. And death, in the most ultimate sense, is, is a complete severance from relationship with God. And so Moses, nobly, offers himself up to pay the price for atonement. But Moses' did not, but Moses's offer is denied to suffer in Israel's place. Why? Because he couldn't bear the weight of Israel's sin. He couldn't pay the price for the sin of an entire nation because he himself wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfectly faithful either. It'd be like you or I trying to pay off a million-dollar home loan with a crumpled note from your forgotten Monopoly set. But what we have in Jesus is not just the perfect mediator between us and God, but also the perfect sacrifice for our atonement. See, Jesus alone was perfectly faithful in covenant relationship with the Father, doing what we and Israel were too weak to do, He did and obeyed everything perfectly from the Father. And because of his perfect faithfulness, Jesus suffered the fullest and most agonising consequences of sin and idolatry on the cross. His cry at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the cry of the perfect son of man, the son of God, being completely and utterly rejected and forsaken by God. Friends, his life was blotted out so that ours could be written into the book. And though God showed mercy towards Israel, Jesus suffered the full, unrestrained wrath of God in all of its totality. In Romans 3, Paul tells us that Jesus is the ultimate and perfect atoning sacrifice. It's his death that pays for all of our unfaithfulness moment when we've over the false gods and their empty promises forsaking the god who so deeply loves us paul says that in jesus we are reconciled we are restored to relationship with god and this means that we can come to god without fear and there's here's the promise that he that god will not crush us with condemning wrath because jesus has already paid that price Jesus pays the price for our atonement. And Moses' inability to atone for Israel's sin, it just points us to Jesus, the one who is perfect and can make atonement and has made atonement for all of our sin. Jesus is strong and faithful, where we are too weak to be faithful. And the way that idols lose their power, the way they lose their allure, it's not by the modification of our outward behaviour, but it's actually by a transformation of our hearts and their desires. Church, our forgetfulness is too often like Israel's. And I know for me, the busyness of life so often leads me to forget the God who so deeply loves me. And we need to be reminded continually of this love and this grace that we have received so freely in Jesus who gave himself up for us. But as the reality of what Jesus has done sets in, and takes root in our hearts and we increasingly experience his love for us, it's, that's when our hearts are stirred and we fall deeper in love with the God of love. And it's this love that has the power to change our hearts and overflows into new ways of living. Church, anything but this is just behavioural modification. But what the gospel brings is a heart transformation. And so what this means for us is that our most pressing need is not to change ourselves but to receive the love of God to us in Jesus. To not only know that He has pri- paid the price for our sin, but also that He and His atoning death has made possible for us relationship with God. And so, in this, we can be bold in coming before God, our Father, knowing that we are deeply loved and accepted that all of our sin and their consequences have been dealt with in Jesus on the cross. And as we see and we know and we experience his love for us, our hearts are stirred and they're actually changed. We're given new desires, new hearts, ones that long for and love him. And so, church, do not despair. Look to Jesus. Think on Jesus Reflect upon his love and his grace for you and for me and let that bring about the transformation that we so desperately need. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he was strong and faithful where we were weak and unfaithful. And we thank you that you have made a way through his life and his death and his resurrection for us to know you and to be in relationship with you and i pray that that would change us our hearts their desires our longings and i pray that this gospel would break the power of idols in all of our lives help us god today and always. In Jesus' name. Amen.